All right, tonight we're going to continue the element of evangelism of the end times. Remember, we have four categories we're going to be looking at, really five, but four um, pretty well developed. The last one's going to be calling to decision, and really we've already done the prayer element as well. So we are really focusing in tonight uh, still on revealing truth in a subjective world. We talked about the necessity of being able to be reasonable, to be able to engage people on an intellectual level, calling them to think through certain concepts that are necessary for the gospel. The concept of justice, for example, is very necessary for the gospel. Would you agree with that? Do you understand the concept that there is, when there is a sin, when there is a, a commitment of a crime, that it is right and just, that it is, uh, should be anticipated, that what is fair is that there is a consequence for that crime, and that consequence is going to be negative. Uh, but then also, the idea of redemption, of atonement, is also necessary there, that real, really justice is the balance of judgment and mercy. That is justice, and so to understand that balance. But also to recognize the concept of sacrificial uh, care for, for someone else, that I'm willing to give myself for someone else, that unselfishness and the basis of what God has done for us, which is an uh, expression of his love for us. And so these are concepts I need to understand that if we don't have a good understand them ourselves, and if they are not willing to think through those processes, that we just isolate ourselves from those ideas, that we end up in a troubling situation where we have no recognition of authority, of judgment, of that our conscience becomes seared, as Romans says, with the hot iron, that we no longer sense this right and wrongness, and those principles start to be lost when we start loosening the capacity to be thoughtful about them, that we then become animalistic in our life. That is, we are driven, that our, that our fleshly drives define us. Uh, back in the olden days, that was called naturalism, that we are just animals, and that's really what science has defined you as, hasn't it? You are just well-developed animals. And so we talked about being able to engage people with that, which means that we need to be thoughtful people ourselves. That if we are not thoughtful, it is really hard to engage people and anticipate them being thoughtful people to consider their ways. In the Bible, it says that it's a thoughtful faith that we have, that our faith is one where we evaluate what's going on and we examine ourselves and the condition that we are in. And so that necessity of reasoning, we saw... Paul using it in Athens, correct? Let me reason with you. And so we start with creation, that that should show evidence of God uh, and his attributes, his power, his glory, uh, elements like that, that Paul uses that, that he has created us, that the height of God's creation is man, and distinguishing man from the balance of creation and so these are not things that are unexpressed in the Bible. They are given us to us as examples. We have several others that we're going to be using as well. Um, 
when we're going to go from reasoning, we, got, we have to be able to reason with people and, uh, and be thoughtful. We want to go into the area tonight of apologetics, which is very closely knitted to the concept of reasoning. Now, apologetics is often defined by a phrase, the defense of your faith. And that is the ability to demonstrate that your faith is not unreasonable and that our faith is well-placed and it is not built upon error or factual anomalies, that is, things that just aren't real, uh, that we are really basing our faith on truths. And so apologetics is really trying to, to build up this argument, is the term we use, it's, it's a bad term, but it's used in this region, in this realm of, of apologetics, that I have this argument. It doesn't mean I'm yelling. It's not arguing like, you know, people argue. It is an argument that says, okay, here's the premise of my argument. And so my premise of my position are these truths. And the question is, can we all agree to those truths? And then if not, now we have to defend those truths. How did you come to that as truth? Maybe I don't share that agreement with you on that as truth. And so that concept of I have these premises, and if we, if we agree on these premises, if I agree on this, whether by experience or by thoughtfulness or by factual data, if, I, if we have this and we combine it with this and we place these around, we build an argument for our conclusion. And this is that process of, of using logic. And we have some examples of that in God's word as well, where we are actually invited. God invites men to engage him in this fashion. Come, let us reason together. Who said that? Who said, come, let us reason together in the Bible? Though your sins be as scarlet, I'll make them white as snow, is the next phrase after that. Who said that? God did. Through whom? What prophet? Isaiah. Okay? First chapter of Isaiah. So, come let us reason together. Though your sins be as scarlet, I'll make them white as snow. And so, he lays out God through the prophets many times, uses this line of argumentation. And he says, listen, and, and sometimes those premises are historical realities. I did all this for you. Remember how your forefathers got out of Egypt? Well, that's a, a line of reasoning that says, and then he says, well, compare yourself to the other nations. What other nation, God, did as much for them as I've done for you? They're faithful to their God, but you're unfaithful to your God. Does that make, is that reasonable? And so God does this all the time through the prophets. He engages them and says, and, and, and what you're doing doesn't even make sense given all of these things. And God is using a line of reasoning with people to try to convince them, number one, rethink your value system and what you're choosing, and number two, um, the foolishness of what, who and what you are, and number three, where you could and should be. And so God uses argumentation a lot to the prophets. And he says, is, by asking questions, and question and answer is a very precious 
means by which to bring this out. So when you engage people and you want to use this, one of the best things to use is not, this is truth, you're going to have to admit that, and based upon that, this is my, you know, you take that tact, um, you're going to make a lot of enemies, and they're going to throw up their defenses right away, right? That's going to be their natural response. And even with a proper tactic like God uses, people still don't end up in the right place. They still end up having to be judged instead of being delivered. And so we need to use a proper tactic. One of the tactics that God uses, and we're going to illustrate and hopefully use in our lives, is asking questions. Do you think this is right? Is this correct? Is this reasonable? And that is an important strategy that we should be using with people and, and to engage in a, a, a conversation that should lead to the gospel to establish the, the foundational premises upon which we're going to come to our conclusions. And this is, this is very well-founded biblically. We can have, I could give you hundreds, hundreds of examples, probably thousands of examples in God's word where this tactic is used. Okay, where God says, and really you can even go to the garden, how does God initiate contact with, with man and sin? The first encounter between a holy, holy, holy God and a sinful man. What is God's first statement? Is it you're a dirty, rotten sinner? What is God's first statement to Adam? What is it? Where are you? <laughs> right? Isn't that the first question he asks? Where are you? That is an incredibly deep question. Who told you that? Did you eat of that tree? The entire initiation from God in confronting Adam about his sinfulness were all questions, weren't they? Every one of them. And so when we talk about using questions as a manner of laying down principles to build an argument on, it is a very valid thing that God uses right from the very start in dealing with sinful people. Doesn't mean it's going to end where you want it to end, but at least it will lay down the principles very well. Now, when we talk about apologetics, apologetics um, take on very many different forms. And in our present form, it has been relegated, not, not completely, but it has been largely enveloped by the creation-evolution argument of the, that we are proposing that God of creation and we are defending the faith against science. That is the antagonist in apologetics. Apologetics always requires someone challenging someone else's faith and this person is defending that faith. So the modern world, you're going to see most of the books written. So I have about 25 to 30 books on apologetics in my library. Almost all of the more recent ones are going to be entering into the realm of creation versus evolution. Going back to the Genesis flood and, and things, you know, all of, by, by Morris and uh, Henry Morris, and so, and, uh, and all the way on. Uh, it is uh, institutionally, the, the face of that would be like Answers in Genesis, 
uh, organizations like that that I talked about last week. And so that's been largely the, the, the work of apologetics in this day. But it hasn't always been that way. And we need to realize that, that really that has been our modern, because the modern um, uh, assault has been through the lens of science. How can you defend your faith in, in these fairy tales when we have so much science that proves it wrong? Okay, well that's the accusation. You believe in fairy tales in this book about a God you've never seen, and we have facts on our side. All right, that's the attack. Now you have to defend it. And we have, there are lots of resources out there that are taking that, that task up and are defending the Bible against those assaults, and they are readily available. That has not been the only assault. It still isn't the only assault on Christianity, and historically, it is fairly recent, and by fairly recent, I mean really only about 500 years old. And you might say, 500 years old? Um, that evolution's been on that way? No. Science, so-called, really goes all the way back to the Bible because I'm pretty sure that one of the New Testament writers says something falsely called science. You remember that? Some book of the Bible references that what they falsely called science. Paul references that. And so, knowledge, that they have this knowledge. And so that, that attack has really been there, but, but in terms of what we think of as modern science has really been going on for, for a little over 500 years, really. Um, but, uh, and we don't recognize it because it's been very gradual and very subtle. But if you go back to the men around the Reformation period, beginning of the Reformation, one of the assaults upon the Bible that they saw and recognized and addressed and defended the Bible against was science in the form of one guy's name that many of them wouldn't even use because they didn't want anyone to be exposed to his heresy. And that guy is a name called Copernicus. And so if you go back and read the writings of a guy named John Calvin, even him, and Luther, and some of those guys, they will identify as one of the areas that they had to defend the scriptures against was a guy named Copernicus, because he was saying the Bible is wrong. Flat out. He was just saying it. And they saw that assault, and they recognized it, and they wanted to address it. And so the idea of defending yourself in the area of science is not new, but it is dominant today. But it hasn't always been the dominant place of apologetics. And so, um, if you go back even to the early church fathers, how did they practice apologetics? Um, if you read some of the works of St. Augustine, you'll find that he had to do a lot of apologetics in, in his classic work, The City of God. How many of you have read that? One? Okay, none of you? One? Um, so, two of us. So, in the City of God by St. Augustine, if you would like to read it, it is a very long work. Um, he is defending Christianity against the, the uh, claims of the Romans that they are the cause of all the problems in the Roman Empire. In that situation, they were saying calamity upon our nation is the fault of these people within our nation because they have offended the gods 
from whom weather, bad weather, and calamity comes. They didn't take personal responsibility for it. They wanted a, a uh, what are they called? A um, scapegoat. They wanted somebody to blame it on, and they blamed it on Christians. So Augustine writes this extensive work called The City of God, and where he defends Christianity against all these accusations, and he uses it in a very reasonable manner. Going through it, it's, you know, you, and, and if you read through that work, um, he will demonstrate a level of apologetics against that threat, saying that, well, bad things are the fault, are God's fault that happens to us. And, and so we have that address. Um, classically, uh, when, when I studied apologetics, um, really, uh, creation research stuff was really in its infancy uh, in, when I was in seminary and in Bible college, and we were trained in logic, and we were trained in, in another area that most apologetics were engaged in. Josh McDowell's book, I think, had just come out, um, Evidences Demand a Verdict, and some of his other books that he's put out since then, that was the first one. That really came out towards the end of my education, and so it really hadn't penetrated the educational system yet. Uh, most of our apologetics were built in the area called philosophy. And so we are doing philosophical defenses of the faith. How does Plato, Aristotle, yeah, I go through the names again. Boy, it's been too long. Socrates, Aristotle, Plato, anyway, another, there, there are several of them that attacked, that has traditionally been used philosophically to attack Christianity. And so we were trained of how to engage that and defend Christianity against those philosophies in the realm of philosophy. That is, I can philosophically go through those with you and engage them. We see some evidence of that in Paul's writing uh, when he tries to deal with Gnostics and things like that. You can see a little bit of it. And we saw in Acts last week where he said, one of your own philosophers says this. So the realm of philosophy is something that, that we were trained in that I don't see young people very well trained in uh, today. And so I brought a couple of books with you out of my library. Um, this is a more modern book. I wanna, I'm going to use this a little bit later. It's called, this is not a Christian book. I'm going to use this as an example the other direction. It's called Attacking Faulty Reasoning. Does that sound like something we need to know how to do? And it's more about how to keep yourself from faulty reasoning. <laughs> but also to engage and to recognize when someone has this argument against you, whether it's a fallacy or not. If it's a fallacious argument, then how to approach it. And he has a whole section here on this. This is not a believer. All right? This is trying to help us learn to think and how to recognize good logic and what is faulty reasoning. This kind of work alone uh, should be taught in and required of every collegiate degree. And I would consider it best if it was part of every high school diploma. Because this means you've learned to think a little bit. Unfortunately, this is usually a, an elective uh, at the collegiate level. To just learn logic and what is faulty reasoning. Um, I'm going to be quoting all this in a little bit. 
I just grabbed one of the older books. This is because it was from my era. I was six years old when this was written. Um, and uh, it's called Journey into Light. And if you read the first five chapters, which I reread today, um, this afternoon I reread, I think it was five, maybe six chapters. I read, it's Roman numerals, so I have to look at it again to see what, they don't have, oh, it's six. So six chapters I've read. So the first six chapters I read through this afternoon, reread to uh, make sure that I uh, recollected it correctly. <laughs> and uh, how does he engage the world? He quotes all of these philosophers, and he quotes Germans and Greeks, and on and on and on and on and goes. Um, why? Well, because he was trained. But he gives his testimony in the midst of the first few chapters, and uh, this was a very learned man who, is, who became a believer as a professor in uh, college. Scripps College, Wesleyan University, there we go. And so he was actually, uh, one, he's considered one of the great scholars of the 60s uh, and 70s. Uh, and he didn't see a Bible until he was 23. Never saw a Bible. American, young man, never saw a Bible until he was 23 years old. He was trained in the philosophies all right, he was well, he has already college, but then he volunteered to go defend his country in World War I. Okay, and all the philosophy they'd studied, and he could quote them all because he knew them all and he had studied them all. He was fluent in all of them and never seen a Bible. He goes into war, World War I, he shares that testimony that all of that philosophy meant nothing when the person beside you is shot and bleeds to death in front of you. It gave me no meaning. It gave me no help. It gave me no light. It gave me nothing. And he had studied them all and had never even considered Christianity. This is before World War I in this country, in the educational realm. How old is our problem in education? It's old, isn't it? This, this generation is gone. Higher education in this country abandoned it long ago. Um, we talk about 1962 when we removed prayer from the schools, but that was one of the last bastions. That was kind of the last little act that finished it. That wasn't the beginning of it. That was the end of this process of turning our higher education, including high school education, away from God and towards secularism. Um, he calls it naturalism. Uh, uh, towards humanism, towards all these other isms. So that here he is, this guy, right? When was World War I? Okay. So he was a product of the turn of the century, of the 20th century, of the, probably born in the 18, late 1800s. And so um, in the 1900s, he was 23 and never saw a Bible in this country, went through an entire educational system, was never confronted with Christianity as a viable truth. Think about that. And, it, and he, was, he found no meaning. He found this, this 
nihilism, this nothingness, and he shares his testimony that it didn't help him in the trenches of World War I when he saw death and then he was shot. But he was rescued and he woke up in a medic place and God's had more for him. He goes back home and uh, the woman that he had married that was there in France came upon a hidden church and the Huguenots, if you don't know who the Huguenots were, um, out of the Reformation, but they um, were hunted so much that their churches are mostly hidden because of their history of being hunted people. Um, and so they, his wife stumbled into there. She was um, Scottish and Irish, I think, and uh, asked for a Bible. Because she was raised in a Christian home, that was not her experience, but he forbade anything religious in their relationship. And she brought home a Bible and he started reading it. Because everything else was dissatisfying. These, this testimony is a testimony of people like, modern people like Josh McDowell, that I've already referenced, who went out to try to prove the premise that everything in the Bible is false, that it is a fairy tale. This man didn't come from that direction. He came from it as an agnostic. Basically, none of that is worth even bothering my time with. And he began reading, and he just flipped the Bible open, he says. And the first passage he came to was Matthew chapter 5. What is Matthew chapter 5? The beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. Of all the places to begin in the Bible, he begins there, and he read long into the night that night, he says, and he got through the Gospel of John. Yes, that means he read all of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. He read all four Gospels that night. And his conclusion was, this is the truth. And he wants to tell us about the journey into light. But his whole argument is, from a philosophical perspective of why all these other philosophies of the world don't help you. They are meaningless. But as I read through this, I realized that in my training that's not being done so, I recognize all these names that he's listing. I was exposed to them, and most of our people, most people in the education system aren't even exposed to these anymore. Because we've abandoned philosophy because it is largely dissatisfying, and we replaced it with science. And he was living at a time when that was occurring. And so one of these, he called naturalism, the demythologizing through science, that we took it, the mythology away, but that didn't affect Christianity if we were honest about it. But uh, certainly the attack was there. And so he's going to go through, and he's going to show this. Now, has he quoted a lot of scripture? No. Occasionally, he gives you a little reference here and there. By and large, he's quoting all these others to demonstrate that none of them are adequate to the task. Because none of those philosophers got it right. They were all ultimately lead to meaninglessness without Christ. I mean, he's writing against books that came out in his period called God is Dead. How many of you ever heard that word? That, that title, God is Dead. That was a big writing that came out in the early 60s. This was written as one of the responses to that. 
and he talks about it, and he puts out their premises, and he engages them. And so it used to be that apologetics was largely in the area of philosophy. And this was the type of book that would engage that um, from a biblical perspective. And so today we have largely that we're addressing because our number one antagonist to Christianity in the area of thought is science. And, and you've heard me use the word scientism rather than science because really that means scientism is that we elevate science above everything. We try to find all of our answers to all of our questions there. And so the question is, is that satisfying? Is that bringing meaning to anything? Uh, and is it very much different than Greek mythology? It really isn't when the end result is. If we're honest, and the problem is, is to bring forward honesty. And, we <coughs> and we're trying to use questions. Now, I want to, before we get into, I don't know if we're going to get into that, I hate to do this. I want to just explain to you. Now, this is um, in a textbook. You see the markings. Uh, this was written in the 19, late 1990s. So this is about 20, almost 25 years old. But I want you to see, this is about what makes a good argument. And he's trying to point, he has, um, I think, four points of what's the criteria necessary to make a good argument. And I want to read you a paragraph, uh, well, some excerpts, some paragraphs, on number, number two. is number two criteria of what makes a good argument. The premise of a good argument must also be acceptable. The term acceptable is preferred to the more traditional term true for several reasons. That's the number one sentence in this category of the second necessary criteria for your argument to hold weight. <coughs> Excuse me. Is that it is acceptable. What did he just say about the word acceptable? Why are we using that? What is it preferred over? The word true. Does that bother you? It shouldn't because he doesn't believe in truth. He's not a believer. Let me read this later. It is notoriously difficult <coughs> to establish the absolute truth of any statement. It would be an impractical requirement of a good argument that its premise be true in any absolute or strict sense. It, third, it seems obvious that as a matter of practice, we don't actually use the notion of truth in our arguments. Fourth, even if a premise were true in the absolute sense, it may be unacceptable to a particular audience because that audience may not be in a position to determine its truth. I want you to see what is being taught in higher education about what makes up a good argument. And the second criteria of a good argument is, is it acceptable, not is it true? So even our best thinkers who choose to take a class on logic are confronted with the idea and given multiple reasons, four reasons why you should not use the word truth because it is unattainable. And we are wanting to confront them with truth. 
correct? And so they've already been trained and taught that there, you shouldn't pursue truth. You should just pursue what is acceptable. What is that calling you to? What is acceptable to you might not be acceptable to me, right? Or what is acceptable is determined by the majority. Now we have relativism. This is a manner of saying, well, your premise should be true, but we're not going to use the word true, so it should just be acceptable. And this is one of the four criteria he lists of what makes a good argument. And we come on the scene, and we have something that we are saying is true. It is the truth. And so the question is, can we address these arguments? And his statement is, how can you determine that something is true? This is a man that is training other people how to think. And his statement is that we can't really determine what is true. Okay, so don't think that because you encounter a smart person that they have the truth. This man, the first book, had a degree in philosophy, was well-read, and didn't know the truth, but knew that everything he had studied really meant nothing when he was confronted with death in his presence of his comrade right beside him. The fact is, is that we are defending the truth against those who have no concept of truth. And these are the smart people They don't know how to identify truth and how to stand for truth. So they just say, well, is this acceptable? Can we agree on this? Right? Now, that is, I'm going to actually invite you to start there with people. Can we agree? Rather than saying, well, the truth is, but rather to ask the questions. Can we agree? And so his statement is somewhat correct that you need to start with people in, an agreeable, in, in agreed areas, areas that are acceptable, that they will accept this, but realize that you're trying to move them to hear the truth, which is what we're going to do next week when we talk about using the Bible and using scriptures to guide people. To, but we're trying to, how do I get them to the scriptures? Well, he's right to a degree, um, even in his error, uh, that he can't know what truth is. You can't prove what something is true. Uh, his own argument is fallacious to defend him abandoning the word true. Okay? Um, he's a hypocrite. He's, he's, he's guilty of his own fallacy. And so he wants to say, let's not use the word true anymore because you can't know what's absolutely true, and you can't prove something is absolutely true. So you can only prove what is acceptable. And so what do we accept? And so we have to begin there with people because that's what they've been trained to begin with. Well, what is acceptable? Can we agree on this? 
Do you agree that there is, um, that there is wrong, there is right? Can you agree that there are consequences to actions? Can we agree uh, that um, these are the realities of life? Can we agree that humans are distinctly different than animals? Oh, if they give you that, hallelujah. All right, because now you've just wiped out naturalism, uh, evolutionism, scientism. That we are distinctly different. There's something. And so I engage people on these with various questions, and I ask them, you know, when they make the assertion somehow they don't believe in God and that we are just well-developed creatures, and I, and I ask them a series of questions to challenge that. Because there's things they've never thought about. You know, why do we wear clothes? Just fundamental things they haven't even thought about. No other animal wears clothes. Okay, snails. But crabs. That's really not for covering, that's for protection. And why do we have fashion? Okay, and then why do we consider, you know, and so we go through the whole, and then we, I can engage them on moral questions. Because we're just animals, and the only reason uh, for any kind of physical uh, uh, engagement is procreation. But amazingly, we have all these people that are engaged with people of the same sex. How does that work? Because naturalism says the only purpose of that is to maintain the species. And so I had this conversation in Boston with two medical doctors. Two medical doctors visiting our country from another country. We're in an Airbnb. We're sharing the Airbnb. So we sat down and had a little conversation. And, um, and they were trying to defend homosexuality. And I'm like, don't you believe in evolution? Yeah, yeah, we believe in evolution. I said, well, then it doesn't work. Because that's terminal. That's terminal to the species. You can't procreate that way. What are you going to do? It's termination. It's not evolution. You're not evolving because it's terminal to the species. If all of us decided we're attracted to people of the same gender as us. That's terminal to the species. That's counter-evolutionary. Uh, someone's just going to have to take it for the team. Well, how stupid is that statement? Medical doctors. Not stupid people. Two medical doctors defending that. From an evolutionary perspective, it's foolish. And it just falls down in front of them, and they know it. But will they admit it? But I didn't do that by saying, you uh, evolutionists, I can't talk to you. No. I just started by asking them a series of questions that led them to the point to realize that that position, that moral position, is inconsistent with their philosophy of the world that they don't match up and they have no meaning. And now that puts it upon them to realize they should have cognitive dissonance over it. They should not be okay with that. 
because it's irrational. You think my faith is irrational? Let me show you how irrational your faith is. You think that somehow um, homosexuality is an advancement of the human species when it is terminal to the human species. Figure that one out. Medical doctors. Okay, from Scotland. They're from, they're both Scotland, from Scotland. That's frightening. They haven't thought that far through it, and they were devastated. And I've shared with you before the example of the student from New Mexico Tech that I shared an airplane. I didn't sit there and yell at him. I didn't have to. I just asked him questions. Well, what about this? Well, what about that? And it challenged him. Why? So I could direct him to the truth. And when he was confronted with the truth, he rejected it. So God starts off his initiation by asking a lot of questions. Let's have a conversation. Let's, let's, let's reason together. Okay? Even if your sin is crimson, I can wash you white as snow. Right? I have the capacity... I have the desire to do that. The only thing holding up this, this action is your will, your decision. What a powerful confrontation of people. Here's who I am. Here's what I'm capable of. I can prove it demonstrably throughout history. I have done this already. I, I have the capacity to do this. God has that argumentation. And by the way, God does this in the book of Job as well. This is, how does he confront Job at the end? Were you there? Do you remember all his questions? Were you there when I did this? Were you there when I did that? Were you there with that? And Job goes, oh, he just melts. God didn't beat him on the head with absolute truth. He asked him a series of questions to undermine his own arrogance that he hasn't come to. And for this man, that undermining happened in a trench in the middle of war when he was confronted with death for the first time. This smart aleck, 23-year-old, well, he was actually 21, I think, when that happened, or 22, um, that thought he knew everything because he'd studied all the classics. Top of his class, brilliant man, rejected the, the fairy tales of religions to such a degree he never even bothered to look into them. Sound familiar? And they all let him down. And we need to recognize that all these other philosophies will let everyone down. There is only one true God. And he has done one, uh, has sent his only begotten son. And there is only one mean of salvation. And we need to engage people with that message. And that requires something of us to engage them in a question-answer format to draw out that their, and to draw their attention to the inadequacies of what they have by asking really important questions. And this man really listed them off. It was, I don't have the time to go through that page, but he lists these off, and he says, nobody, uh, everything I studied didn't answer any of these questions. And 
the term that he used is, uh, is um, this is a book that would understand me. He was referring to the Bible. I want a book that understands me. And so we go back to the first question of God in the Garden of Eden after sin. Where are you? You need to ask people that. Where are you? Let me give you a series of questions to figure out where you are at. Because God has an answer to where they're at. Most people aren't willing to think of that because if they do, they get depressed. They don't want to think about uh, what's it, what's, what are you doing that for? Why? It, you know, so when I encounter a guy that says, you know, I tell him this week I got a, my allergy shot, and he says, the only shot I take is about this tall. What's he talking about? Alcohol, right? All right, and, and I'm like, oh, that's too bad that you take that one. You find anything of value there? Okay. Where are you, Adam? Who told you you were naked? Did you eat from that tree? What a challenging way to confront a sinner with his sin and to draw him in to acknowledge the truth, even though there's no evidence that Adam ever became a believer. A guy who walked with God in the garden never confessed his sin. Think about that a little bit. There's some evidence of Eve doing it, but in the naming of her son, uh, but there's no evidence of Adam. And never in the Bible is Adam ever constructed as someone who is a follower of God and a repentant man. He carries his sin all through history. But we want to confront people nonetheless, whether they accept or reject that message, we will confront people, who are you? Where are you at? And we need to be able to engage people with these kinds of things, and that means you might have to be better well-read, you need to be in God's word, but you also need to be looking at people a little bit differently and realizing that when they rage against you, there's something going on. And I want to read one last quote. There's God, I underlined it. Here we go. I love this. When I read this, it got underlined. I almost never write in these books. Okay, some people do. Whoever, this was belonged by, I, got, I know I'm late. This is, uh, here, this guy wrote all over it, Chuck Palsley, whose textbook this was. He wrote his name on, all over the place and he put all these marks. None of these are mine, okay? This is his marking because he's using this. He took the class. I didn't, I didn't use this textbook. This was, this was long after I was out of school. All right, here's his statement. Little did I realize at the time that a militant attitude often betrays an inner turmoil. I'll read it again. I, little did I realize at, that, at the time that a militant attitude, that was his, no religion in my house. That's what he's talking about. A militant 
I made it clear to her that religion would be taboo in our home, and so it was when the home became a reality. So she knew before they got married, and so she wasn't able to, no religion, no, it was taboo. You couldn't talk about it, couldn't reference it, go to, to Little did I realize at the time that a militant attitude, and you're going to encounter people with a militant attitude, aren't you? If you're going to share the gospel with people, uh, they're going to be militantly against it because you might say, well, why? Why are they so militant against it? Betrays an inner turmoil. They don't know the answer. They don't know the truth. And, and because they don't think it's accessible, they want to just militantly stay where they are, defend who they are, um, to show that outward uh, facade that they are okay. When inside, they are just torn, torn up. This guy was torn up inside. Because none of these philosophers, and he talks about writing down quotes from them in this special book that he thought would answer all of his problems um, because he would have all the philosophers' best statements that touched him deeply that he would put them all categorized in one book for himself. And it was dissatisfying. And he abandoned the whole project. He had inner turmoil. All the while, to his own wife, he was militantly saying, no religion in my house. And all it took, and by the way, she never did introduce Christianity until he was devastated. And then she had to go to a pastor to find a Bible because she didn't have one. She didn't bring it into the marriage. And he walked, she walked into the home afraid and he took it out of her hand and says, Maybe this one says something. And he became a believer that night, early the next morning. Um, so, uh, really important. You and the more militant people are, uh, don't give up on them. They're, they're probably in more turmoil and maybe even more thoughtful about the process than you might think. Engage them with that question, where are you at? What do you know? Who told you that? Why? Have you eaten of that tree? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you for your word. And Lord, uh, and we see the place where people are at, that even the smartest among them can't acknowledge that there is truth, and yet you are the truth. And Lord, we pray that we might understand them and approach them uh, with a loving approach that will draw them to just think about their need and about the emptiness of what the world has to offer that never is it satisfying, no matter the depths that they plunge into all these isms that none of them uh, can replace you and what you can do in men's lives. Lord, we thank you for men that have gone through this and women that have written of it and are seeking to help others to move uh, toward you. And Lord, may we be counted of that number that are willing to engage people with this kind of patience and see that uh, beneath their uh, anger, beneath their bitterness, beneath their 
nasty responses, there is turmoil in their heart. And that we might be patient that, that at that right time that we might introduce your word. And we praise his in Christ Jesus' name. Amen.